0: Hello, everyone. Before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr. Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But The main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast. And that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal potcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr Neil Buttery. Hello
1: everyone and welcome back to the History of England. Episode 73, Return of the Jedi. So last week, we left Henry and Eleanor in control after an uncharacteristically well-organised fight back. All a characteristically dishonest fight back. But in the hideous language of business, we also gave everyone a heads up about a monumental, honest-to-goodness, no-poo bloomer on its way. Because in one short year, Henry and Eleanor were to throw away all the advantages they'd won and precipitate one of the most remarkable crises in English history. During 1262, the localities and knights of the shires were given a constant reminder that the provisions of Oxford and Westminster were dead. The king's sheriffs were in power, the normal old type of heirs were in progress, i.e. the ones that ended up leaving you feeling poorer, rather than the ones that allowed you to raise grievances against badly behaved sheriffs. Now, it's not always easy to gauge the level of discontent at a local level in times medieval, but there's a great quote from a royalist lord here. He visited his estates in Sussex and in a letter noted that it would have been all the better for the king if he'd had on his side such preachers as his opponents had, which builds a picture of a continuous undercurrent of complaint and disgruntlement. Politically, Louis of France tried to deliver arbitration between Henry and de Montfort to try and finally put to bed all those arguments about money, but to no avail. Henry called in the finest lawyers to stick it to de Montfort, and it's pretty doubtful that de Montfort tried any harder to reach an amicable settlement. Before October, the whole thing had crashed and burned, which meant that at the October Parliament, de Montfort suddenly showed up with papal bulls confirming the provisions of Westminster. Clearly, de Montfort had been working a way to counteract Henry and Eleanor's earlier masterstroke with the Pope, which is all well and good. But you also have to ask that if Henry had decided to talk de Montfort into coming back on his side, would those new papal bulls ever have seen the light of day? Would de Montfort maybe just filed them under B1N? Once again, there's a slightly uncomfortable relationship between de Montfort's private interests and the public cause. But it is also worth noting, isn't it, just how remarkable de Montfort is. He has the power and influence to get the Pope to go back on his previous commitment to the King of England. Meanwhile, Eleanor had a crackdown on Edward. He might be her flesh and blood, but sometimes flesh and blood needed to be told what to do, so she basically made him remove all the troublesome young men from his household. The aim was to isolate Edward and teach him who was boss. So, for example, Roger Leyburne was stripped of his goods and most of his land's. Roger Clifford was made to pay up his debts. The impact of all this was to create a group of embittered wild boys from the Welsh marches. It didn't take them long to cause trouble. In August 1262, the King had to issue an order preventing them from going to tournaments where clearly they were stirring up trouble. But the really big honest-to-goodness-no-poo bloomer that Henry and Eleanor committed, the piece of mindless vindictiveness that would give them another three years of grief, was their treatment of the De I think it should be clear by now that the De Clare family were so powerful as to be almost a balance here between success and failure. So, in July 1262, Richard De Clare had died, which meant that the next in line was his 18 year old son, Gilbert, also known as the Red Clare, a name unlikely to indicate a quiet and retiring manner. So, what do you do? One option? would be to take this opportunity to put the bloke permanently out of business if you're sick of being at the mercy of a big family. And if you do this, you do it properly, you kick them when they are down for several minutes so that they don't get back up again. Or alternatively, you give them a big hug. You tell them how sorry you are about Dad and welcome them into the big happy family that is the Plantagenet family. What you categorically do not do, unless you're blithering idiots, of course, is just to give them cause for mild irritation without finishing them off so of course this is exactly what Eleanor and Henry do, they refuse to confirm Gilbert in his estates. They proposed an allocation of dower to Gilbert's mother that would have alienated prime declare lands out of Gilbert's hands. And to capital, they decided that now was the good time to start an inquiry against his father on the basis that he might have usurped royal rights. There has never been a Hector as unhappy as Gilbert. In March 1263, he publicly refused to do homage to Prince Edward as Henry's heir. By this time, the truth was beginning to dawn on Henry and Eleanor. In January 1263, in a complete reversal of previous policy, Henry suddenly confirmed and published the provisions of Westminster and promised to rule by them. Henry started talking with de Montfort in France, trying to get him back on side, rather than trying to give him a shoeing. But meanwhile, the Welsh borders had gone up in flames. In November 1262 a revolt had started among the marcher lord Roger Mortimer's tenants and before long Llewellyn had joined in and Herefordshire was burning. And into this delicate and inflammable situation stalked the leopard. Edward had been upbraided by his father, rather unfairly you have to think, for letting his lands in the Welsh marchers suffer in this way. So Edward arrived back in England to restore control. Surely this would be the chance his disgruntled ex-householders had been waiting for. Edward would call them back to his side, and they would muller the Welsh together, and all would once again be sweetness and light. But not a bit of it. Instead, Edward arrived back with his new friends from France, from the sun-soaked lands of Champagne and Burgundy, full of the words and habits of the fashionable French. Flying in the face of the provisions... He gave offices and castles to his new foreign friends. I mean, really, do me a favour. What was it about the Plantagenets that meant they just couldn't get the message? So, the taper had duly been applied to the political powder keg. Edward struggled to have any impact on the Welsh uprising because the English would do nothing to help him. And his now doubly embittered ex-household, Clifford, Leyburne et al, joined together and summoned a man they knew could help. That man... Was de Montfort. Away in France, de Montfort knew he was in a good position. He was untouched by any sense of compromise from last year, having been away in France, and so could make a better leader than Gilbert de Clare, who through his brother Richard's earlier defection was implicated in the royal resurgence. De Montfort knew the extent of discontent. He knew he could combine both ecclesiastical and secular support. He had the military expertise to make it stick. He despised Henry. It should be clear now that he had two parallel motivations a genuine commitment to the cause of reform and the commonwealth of the realm, and a genuine commitment to earning vast amounts of money and land for the long term security of his family. The first would win him power and everlasting fame, and the second would earn him death and mutilation. Around the 25th of April, de Montfort therefore arrived back in England he came back as the one magnate completely unaffected by any suspicion of compromise or a double dealing with Henry and Eleanor. His adherence to the provision of Oxford had never wavered, and now the cause of reform was very much focused on him. In the words of David Carpenter, he'd become the leader of the first political movement in English history. He'd become the leader of reform, and uniquely in English history so far, he'd become the head of a populist movement. When he arrived back in England, for a moment he was more powerful than at any time in the past or future. The world was his lobster. What he said would happen. De Montfort arranged a meeting at Oxford Sharpish and was joined there by magnates as powerful as Gilbert de Clare, John Warren, the disaffected Marchalot, but also, quite remarkably, Richard of Cornwall. You know, the king's brother. I mean, if you were Henry, that would have to hurt, his own flesh and blood. Eleanor, take Richard off the Christmas card list. De Montford was also joined by churchmen like Walter de Cantaloupe, supporters who would prove a good deal more constant than the baronial lot, who, as we'll see, are to prove it more than a little slippery. The rebels sent Henry a nice letter. Oi, Henry, confirm the provisions of Oxford, or else. Now, in a desperate attempt to save himself from the consequences of his own continuing incompetence and arrogance, Henry had reissued the provisions of Westminster. But the provisions of Oxford were something else, because these were the ones that said he was subject to a council of 15 and effectively had no more power and authority than the school pencil monitor. De Montfort and its pals knew full well that Henry and Eleanor were not going to accept this, and by the end of May, Henry's reply was in. It was war. So, what we get next was what we call the First Baron's War. It was one that de Montfort had planned for and was now able to put into operation, and it was effective and well planned, and was to have the desired effect, though long-term unfortunate consequences. I would like to tell you that all the fine people of England were now fighting for justice and freedom, truth and light. But if I did say that, it would be largely, though not completely, a fib. The truth is that de Montfort knew that while the provisions of Oxford and Westminster were an important rallying cry... The one that shouted louder was actually the one about getting rid of the foreigners. It was this that had really motivated the marchers Clifford and Leyburne. It was also the one that had motivated the churchmen who were suffering all manner of Italian priests coming over and taking key church posts and lands at the order of the Pope. And so it was this motivation that de Montfort took advantage of now the rebels launched a series of short, sharp attacks on vulnerable foreigners. A good example is Peter of yves Blanche, the Bishop of Hereford. He was captured in his cathedral on the 7th of June and imprisoned along with his alien canons in a neighbouring castle while his estates burned. But it spread throughout the country, basically a complete breakdown of public order. Here's a little contemporary quote that sums it up and also reflects the topsy-turvy nature of the whole thing. The barons with a great army waged war against all their enemies. At Hereford they seized the bishop and all his canons who were foreigners, carried off all their treasures, sold all they could find on the manors and ravaged many of the manors with fire. Always carrying the king's standard before them, they seized the castles belonging to the king and some others and they placed new constables in them, all of whom they made swear fealty to the king. The quote reflects the same fundamental truth that Cromwell would face 400 years later. No one knew what to do without a king. So they rebelled against the king in the name of the king. Actually, what they do is they blame the king's evil counsellors. Though let me be careful to guard against any anachronism here. There's no suspicion in the 13th century that anybody had any thought of removing Henry, let alone the institution of the monarchy. In response, Henry dug deep into the toolbox of his leadership skills he appointed a series of local military captains and castellans, told them to deal with the rebels, and fled to the Tower of London, taking his wife and son with him. Butch or what? Within three weeks, in 1263, de Montfort orchestrated the collapse of the royalist cause. Although the rebellion was active throughout the country, London and the south-east were the key. De Montfort wrote to the Londoners, asking for their support, advanced on the south-east, by mid-July had won the sink ports of the south-east coast and, crucially, Dover Castle, the key to England from the continent. The baronial party clarified their demands and now were completely uncompromising. Now it was not just adherence to the provisions and rule by native Englishmen, foreigners were to be banished from the kingdom never to return. The flames of xenophobia were well and truly fanned. Popular feeling all over the country was summed up by one chronicler, who wrote that the common people despised everyone who could not speak English. Well, it's been a long time coming, but here it is. The fight back of the despised and downtrodden English speaker after two centuries at the bottom of the heap. That well-known alien, de Montford, had at last helped the English get in touch with their own national feeling. Feelings in London were running high. Henry and family were in something of a jam. The last time they'd taken refuge in the Tower, they'd done so as part of a the plan. There'd been lots of food and money stored up, and well-fed, beefy men-at-arms ready to do their bidding. This flight, though, hadn't been planned, and it just so happened that the cupboard was bare. And in the words of the chronicler, there was no one in the city who would give them a halfpenny of credit. The London oligarchs had come back to Henry and told him that they'd had a love letter from Simon and urged him to accept the provisions of Oxford and get rid of his son's knights. Henry was now in agreeing mood. All the bravado of 1262 disappeared. But Edward and Eleanor were made of sterner, if not particularly brighter stuff. Edward had a plan. So if our problem is that we haven't got any money to pay the soldiers, let's go and get some. Just outside, west of the city walls, was the round church of the Templars. The new temple area, as it was called, was famed as a deposit for the wealth of the rich and the famous. So, on the 19th of June, Edward and a suspiciously butch bunch of young men turned up at the doors and said they'd all decided to have a weekend getting in touch with their finer artistic feelings and needed to look at the Queen's jewels. Actually, I've no idea what excuse they used, but turn up they did. Once in there, they locked the doors and smashed the place up, breaking over the chests with iron hammers, stealing over a thousand quid and then riding hard for Windsor. Windsor opened its gates and Edward had raised the standard of resistance. Hurrah! But this time he'd miscalculated with characteristic platycidate bombast. What he'd done went down with Londoners like the proverbial lead balloon. This was exactly the kind of high-handed dishonest stuff everyone was complaining against. The mayor of the city, Thomas Fitzthomas, went over to the rebel side. He ignored the views of the city magnates and ruled through the folk moot, the traditional open assembly of all citizens. And he gave power to the guilds against the traditional control of the oligarchs, i.e., the aldermen. From now on, London would be the most loyal and consistent of de Montfort's supporters. It swung the situation, therefore, not to Henry but to de Montfort, as London came out for the cause. By the 4th of July, Henry had given up and agreed once again to servitude. He agreed to issue the remarkable command that all the hated aliens should leave the country and submit to the provisions of Oxford. Now, no one records the meeting between Henry and his wife Eleanor when he told her the news, but I'd like to bet there was a bit of a tongue lashing involved. Eleanor upped sticks and headed for son Edward, who at least was displaying a bit of cojones, however ham-fistedly. She got the barge out and started off down the Thames towards Windsor. But she was to get no further than London Bridge. Eleanor was not popular with Londoners any more than she was elsewhere. Her association with the Savoyards men who were both foreign and military, had focused resentment on her, in addition to irritations such as the collection of the Queen's gold, which is one-tenth of all fines collected by the Crown. But unfortunately for Eleanor, they saw her coming and spread the word. As the barge approached the bridge, Eleanor was pelted with anything that came to hand. Paving stones, rotten vegetables, and worse, insults. Now look, in medieval times, this just doesn't go down well. Neither Eleanor nor her son would ever forget the insult of the common man getting above themselves. London's relationship with her monarchs would remain very difficult until after Edward's death. London had not just caused trouble, it had broken the code. The event raised the temperature of the whole affair and introduced an element of bitterness. This was now personal, and de Montford would also get the blame. Anyway, to do him justice, the mayor, Thomas Fitz Thomas, came forward and rescued her and took her to the Bishop of London's Palace. But the damage was done. Now in the ascendancy, the first administration of de Montfort would last no more than three months, from July to October 1263, so really he had no time to do anything of note he got round to appointing a bunch of new people in the main governmental roles, including himself as steward of England. And he expelled Edward's foreign household knights. But that's about all he achieved. Because at his first Parliament of October, the weakness of his support now became clear. On the face of it, de Montfort in 1263 was sitting pretty. He had wide support from the magnates. He had support from a bunch of marcher lords. He had the support of the church and of the knights in the shire. But in fact, everything was crumbling. Some of the problems he faced were simply inherent in the situation. Others he made worse. Here are the basic problems. Firstly, the support from the Marcher Lords had zip to do with truth, life, justice and the provisions of Oxford, and everything to do with getting back control and influence with Prince Edward. By obligingly banishing Edward's foreign supporters, de Montfort got rid of any reason for the marchers supporting him. That's a slightly tricky one to solve, but he could at least have given them valuable lands or jobs, and with the odd exception he did neither. So that's one pillar of support on its way out. The other problem was the way that de Montfort had seized power. Now the Bazonas and the knights all over the country were worried about law and order. The wave of violence that de Montfort had released looked like trouble they wanted no part of. And the only legitimate source of real authority looked to be the king, so locally, amongst the big knights at least, De Montfort's popularity begins to wane, and finally, there could be no long-lasting settlement until the land seized from the Savoyard was returned and That was mighty difficult since it had gone to de Montfort's supporters, or if not, they had expected that it would go to them to give him his due. de Montfort tried to solve these problems, and in July had a peace agreement worked out which included the return of property to the Savoyyard. Meanwhile, Louis IX was worried by these events and was demanding to meet with his vassal Henry and not being put off by de Montfort's delegations. De Montfort decided to take the ball by the horns and submitted the July Agreement to both Parliament and arbitration by Louis IX. There must have been dancing with wine, nibbles and those little bits of cheese on the end of cocktail sticks in the royal apartments that evening. Surely no crowned head of Europe would be daft enough to approve this sort of arrangement. And meanwhile, the September Parliament went really badly. The chroniclers hit at the arrogance on the part of de Montfort, but the return of property must have meant it was bound to be difficult. So in late September, the King and de Montfort and sundry others hopped off to France. They met with Louis and put the arguments. Louis deliberated and proved himself, in fact, to be as daft as a brush, when, to everyone's astonishment, he pronounced in the Baron's favour. Good golly, Miss Molly, said everyone, it really is pretty extraordinary. Either Louis had taken too much happy juice that morning, or it was de Montfort's famed eloquence that won it for the barons. So the barons returned home rejoicing, but in fact it changed absolutely nothing fundamental. De Montfort's government was still built on shifting sands, and events moved quickly to prove the point. Edward took the initiative again, and this time his strategy was sound and sure-footed. He asked for permission to visit his wife at Windsor, but once there, took control of the castle and was quickly joined by Henry. Edward's old marcher lads quickly joined him, and this was bad enough, as de Montforts ledge trouble in the marches was to prove. But then key magnates went too. John Warren, Gilbert de Clare, Roger Bigard, the Earl of Norfolk and his brother Hugh, and Henry of Almaine, Richard of Cornwall's son, went too. There was just one small benefit of all this desertion. It left de Montford with three groups of supporters, all now totally reliable. London, de Montfort's own personal following and family, and the majority of the church, who followed from a sense of justice as much for the hatred of foreigners. The desertion of Henry of Almain gives a small, rare glimpse of de Montfort's personality. We had to take so much of de Montfort's enormous talent for influencing people on trust or by results, but one source records this conversation. Henry told de Montfort he could no longer stand against his own father, but he would never bear arms against de Montford. Now, if I'd been de Montford in this situation, I'd at very least have ranted, possibly cried a bit, and maybe just possibly perhaps done a bit of begging. In the words of SpongeBob, Oh please, oh please, oh please. But de Montfort was made of sterner stuff, and he replied cheerfully, Lord Henry, I gave a warm welcome to your person, not because of your arms, but because I was hoping for a special constancy from you. Go and return home with your arms. I do not fear them. It says a lot to me, this reply. It's brave and straightforward, and at the same time self-confident, despite the increasingly desperate situation around him. It's warm and it's personal. Plus, also, let's make the same point again. While every single other player in this drama wanders around from faction to faction, signs up for this, that and t'other at one point, and then moves on, De Montfort is alone in consistently pursuing the provisions of Oxford, as he'd sworn to do. Oh, and of course, trying to make a shed load of cash at the same time. So now, once again, there were two armed camps, and this time the royal camp had the initiative. First of all, both parties agreed once again that Louis IX was the answer, and that they'd submit the whole deal to his arbitration once more. But while they were waiting, Henry and his allies acted. In the marches, the most powerful of the marcher lords, Roger Mortimer, attacked and burnt the isolated de Montford manors. At the same time, Henry and Edward moved to Oxford and they took control of the great offices of state. They took Winchester and the sank ports of the south-east coast and it wasn't until they marched on Dover that they had to deal with a setback. De Montford, meanwhile, had a problem. He was really pretty helpless. He was secure for the moment in his power base of Kenilworth in the Midlands, but he was too far from the action. So he refused to be distracted by Mortimer's attack on the manors which were basically indefensible in the marches, and instead he marched to London, his only other significant power base. And there the whole affair almost ended. One of the oldest parts of London is Southwark, which is south of the River Thames at the southern end of the bridge. There is at this point still just one bridge over the river, by the way. Since the 12th century it's been built of stone but it's a beast of a thing. There are houses all the way along it and a chapel in the middle dedicated to Thomas Beckett. This is clearly a digression and sorry for that but let me mention that the saying at this time was that London Bridge was made for wise men to walk over and fools to go under. I.e. although it's possible for boats to navigate through the bridge there were plenty who died in the attempt. The bridge had 19 arches and a drawbridge at the Southwark end. And it was this that de Montfort approached in December 1263 with a handful of men only to find the drawbridge to his horror closed against him. And Henry's army were on his tail. Basically de Montfort thought he was done for. He and his men confessed, took the cross and had communion. They were called on to surrender but they refused and they prepared to die. And then at this point behind them in the city in the nick of time de Montfort's faction took control lowered the drawbridge, and de Montfort was able to scuttle inside and take refuge in the city. It was a close-run thing. After this, then, a stalemate basically ensued between the two factions, so at the end of December both parties set off for the French town of Amiens, there to meet Louis and hear his judgement. Historians have criticised de Montfort for allowing his fate to be decided by such a judgement. After all, wasn't he meant to be in control by now? but as we've seen, actually, he'd already lost the initiative. And anyway, he'd been here before. Louis was his mate, and he'd won the argument last time. And then disaster struck. On his way south from his home castle of Kenilworth, de Montfort fell from his horse and broke his leg. He was forced to stay at home and let his representatives argue the case for him. But without de Montfort's eloquence, Louis's judgment, the mise of Amiens as it has become known, was a complete rejection of the baronial argument. He rejected the provisions of Oxford, he decreed that the king had an absolute right to appoint his own ministers, and he quashed the expulsion of aliens. He then, rather feebly, told everyone to get on with each other and forget their quarrel. This complete bolt fast would have come as a shock to de Montfort when he heard, and you have to ask what had changed – After all, the arguments were little different to last time. But now in 1264, there was no de Montfort there, as we've said, and this time Louis had been hammered by all the expelled aliens that had arrived at his court, and by his wife, the sister of the English Queen after all. And under this pressure, he buckled. The Baronial Party now had a simple choice. Submit and wave the provisions goodbye and possibly suffer personal consequences, or fight. They chose the latter and they did so quickly. Two of de Montfort's sons, Henry and Simon, attacked Mortimer in the Welsh marches as quickly as the 4th of February and they met with immediate success. Mortimer's castle at Wigmore was taken and two others as well. Other of de Montfort's captains decided to burn Worcester. There was no real reason to do this but clearly it seemed that everyone was burning something so they just joined in. After all, there's nothing like a bit of gratuitous violence. Henry de Montfort then managed to demonstrate that he was a complete numpty and Edward was again able to prove that he had the morals of a wolf. Edward was by this time advancing towards the marches and he attacked Gloucester held at that time by the barons. He failed to take the castle and was then trapped by Henry de Montfort's advancing force. Surely here was the chance to end it all or at very least strike the royalists an incredibly damaging blow. In desperation, Edward asked for a truce. Not a chance, of course. No one would be that stupid. Except Henry de Montfort. He agreed that he'd withdraw as long as Edward promised not damage or attack Gloucester in any way. Off he went back to Kenilworth, there to get an absolute earful from his dad. I mean, what were you thinking? And meanwhile, in direct contravention of the truce he'd just agreed, Edward entered Gloucester and put it to the sword. Now at this point, rather oddly, Gilbert de Clare rode back into the de Montfort camp and made de Montfort's position look way better. It's odd time, maybe, but rivalry in the Welsh marches with Mortimer may have had something to do with it. Gilbert would soon be regretting his decision, though, because from here on in, things went from bad to worse for the baronial Party. Probably led by Edward and Richard of Cornwall, Henry arrived back in England. And although he couldn't take it over Castle, he could afford to ignore it for the moment and he struck hard and fast at de Montfort's heartlands in the Midlands. De Montfort tried to draw him off by attacking Rochester Castle south of London, but Rochester was strong and Henry ignored him, and on the 3rd of April he won a great victory at Northampton, capturing the castle, the entire garrison, and de Montfort's son Simon. Leicester itself was next to submit, and then Nottingham. Henry then moved south, he relieved Rochester and he set off for Dover. If Dover fell, de Montfort would be left with virtually London alone. That de Montfort was losing the war is evident from his attempts before this to negotiate, but the Royalists now had the bit between their teeth, they could smell blood and there would be no compromise. We've often said that in medieval warfare, it's not really about battles which are just way too risky. It's a game of siege and counter-siege. But now de Montfort really had no options left. He left London in May with as large an army as he could manage, though it would have been way smaller than Henry's, and crucially, probably had one third the number of cavalry. But de Montfort knew he was now drinking at the Last Chance Saloon. Which seems like an appropriate place to leave it, on the edge of a cliff. Next week we'll find out how de Montfort fares with his desperate throw of the dice. For the rest, thank you again for all your comments and support. Good luck and have a great week.